Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is actually our one-year anniversary episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm so excited about today's guest. You might know him from The Devil Wears Prada, a movie that I love, as well as some amazing roles on Glow, Love, Wet Hot American Summer, First Day Camp, and 10 Years Later. Plus, of course, his role as Harry Crane on Mad Men. Rich Summer is here. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for having me, George. Oh, absolutely our pleasure. I'm a big fan of yours, not just because you've had some amazing roles in the past, but also you're a big fan of horror and you're out there evangelizing and telling people about the horror movies that you love and everything. And and I love when people are not ashamed to uh, be be a horror fan. So Yeah, I mean, especially lately when I don't have anything going on. <laughs> Uh, it's, um, it's kind of been one of the, the places that I've been hiding inside of is my little horror enjoyment. So it's pretty yeah. easy to talk about cause it's one of the only things I have to do. Hey, well, we'll, we'll take it. And not only are you a fan of horror, but you've actually been in some horror stuff as well, including the summer of 84, which it's three years after Mad Men. You've been doing some theater and some TV and stuff, but for me, at least, it feels kind of like an unexpected move for you. And I'm curious what it was kind of like weaponizing that change of pace to create this sort of like perfect neighbor, but with a dark secret role. Because when that shoe drops, it's like genuinely shocking. And that helps to build uh, with the great performance the way that things escalate and create that fear-filled atmosphere. Uh, very kind of you to say. I Well, look, I mean, for me, I read that script. And, you know, as I said to my wife and uh, another uh, friend of mine, from Mad Men, uh, Aaron Staten, who played Ken Cosgrove, we share a bit of an affinity for particularly 80s horror. And I wrote him a text and said, dude, I think I just got a script that lets me get into a time machine and be in an 80s horror movie. And oh, it, yeah. it, it is, I mean, I think of Summer of 84 sort of like how I think of Mad Men in that obviously these are two period tellings, but told through the lens of the time in which they were told. Ooh, it took me mm-hmm. a long way to get there. But, you know, it, it, Mad Men was always a show about this these people in the 60s, but it was definitely told through a 2010 lens. Right. And similarly, I think Summer of 84 does have a lot of the sort of tropes of an 80s horror movie, but it is definitely told through the lens of when it was filmed in 2017 or whatever it was. Right. It has that sort of warmth looking back that you get only by um, not setting it in the present, but by having someone who actually is looking back and remembering that nostalgia and that fondness for the period. You know, it's not something that you can really get when you're setting something present day, right. whenever that present day may be. I know you're also a big board game fan. You even have your own podcast about it called Cardboard that mostly does yearly updates at this point. <laughs> Now I look forward to those updates, and I'm going to use this opportunity to get my own update and see if there's a horror-themed game that sticks out to you or if one that's coming out that uh, we should look forward to. You know, last year, there was a game that came out called Horrified, which is a – it was done – it's licensing the Universal Monsters. So um, it's a cooperative game where you are trying to avoid – letting the the board be overtaken by these different monsters. And you can choose which monsters you play with. There's the Invisible Man and Dracula and Frankenstein, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Wolfman, 
There might be another. I can't remember. The mummy. Mummy. The in mu- there? Oh yeah, the mummy's in there for sure. I think. Uh, I said for sure. I think that was just me <laughs> covering all of my bases. Um, hey, we respect it. That's right. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, it's that's a fun game. And also, what I uh, like about that one in particular is that it is accessible for like it's not a total gamers game. It's not something mm-hmm. that you have to be a high level board game nerd to to grok right. but it is still gamey enough for someone like me to enjoy especially since it scratches that horror itch at the same time wow it sounds awesome i'll definitely have to look into it and, it's real fun um the movie that we're talking about today is creep show and in creep show the framing device and sort of the bookend segments are a kid who's forbidden to read these horror comics that he loves so much and i'm curious what your experience with horror was like growing up if it was a big part of your life or or if it had that sort of like forbidden fruit uh, allure well a little bit of both um i uh, it was a big part of my life and it had that forbidden fruit allure i had a friend matt who lived down the street from me and he was this perfect combo which was his bedroom was downstairs and his parents bedroom was upstairs he was an only child and they had hbo and it wow. was like oh <laughs> oh this is it i mean we were we were together all the time i mean this is a guy that was my best friend from third grade on and we lived together all four years of college like been, we actually have our weekly uh, zoom board game night tonight so i i still am very much in touch with matt and and we we reminisce often about how we would just very much hope that our children won't do <laughs> what we did which is watch you know die hard and creep show in the basement of uh, of our homes while we're asleep not knowing any better but but yeah, I, I always was sort of enticed by this thing. And the other side of it is that my mom also always enjoyed horror. She more enjoyed the creature feature type stuff from the 50s uh, into the 60s. But she would let me sort of dip my toe in once in a while. She took me to the uh, Jaws 3, got re-released in the drive-ins in like, I don't know, I want to say 87, 88. And we, she took mm. me to see that. So I was... I was only nine or 10. That's sort of my first memory of, of her endorsing it. But I also, right. you know, I, I ran the VCR surreptitiously on Saturday afternoons when uh, Channel 9 showed Halloween 2, you know, cut to hell. But, <laughs> right. um, you know, for me, it, it still was like terrifying enough that, you know, it, right. it built, it built the, the tension and the dread enough that I was like, oh, God, I still don't want to go to that hospital. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, the combination of all those things, kind of getting a little taste of it and then hanging out at, at my buddy Matt's house and putting on top of that, you know, when, when we saw creep show, we were probably, God, we, I bet we were 11 or maybe 12. Wow. That seems like a perfect time. Honestly. Oh my God. It was, it was right in the wheelhouse for us. And it happened, you know, I mean, us being 11 or 12 puts it, this is 89 or 90. So we're seeing this thing only really seven years after it came out. So it, you know, now if I showed it to my kids stylistically, they would be like, what the hell am I watching? (laughs) Whereas for us, this fit still very much in our wheelhouse of what we were used to watching. And there also was a, uh, in, I grew up in Minnesota and there was a chain of comic book stores called Shinders, well, comic books and magazines. And they had at that time as well, there was a re-release of all the EC comics, Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and all that stuff. And I 
uh, jumped on that bandwagon hard. Not to mention that that's right around the time that Tales from the Crypt came out on HBO. It was just sort of like the perfect storm for me to fall in love with it. And, and Seriously. It's, 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 why, it's why I think anthology horror, you know, if I had to choose a genre, even though it's not really a genre of horror, it's more of just a device, but... I, that's what I would choose. Is is interesting. Long answer, George. Long answer. No, hey, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I think that that's really interesting that uh, you like anthologies so much because I know that there are people who are they just swear them off. They say that you can't tell a scary enough or interesting enough story in those little bite sized snippets. And I think that Creepshow is the perfect movie to sort of throw that back in their face and say that. There is so much that's good about each one of these stories. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of love for them still. I know that um, there was a movie that I just saw at Fantasia Fest, The Mortuary Collection. It's so great. It's great. It's really great. And uh, it, it really it has that same sort of affection for these creep shows and, uh, and Tales from the Crypt and stuff. I highly recommend people who enjoy this sort of thing go check that out. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double on your recommendation. The director, Ryan Spindell, and I connected a little bit on Twitter, and he was kind enough, you know, as I was so effusive about my enjoyment of anthology movies, and I had had a ticket to see The Mortuary Collection at last year's um, there's a horror film fest in Toronto. Sorry, Toronto. I can't remember what it's called. But I was there <laughs> working, and I, I had a ticket to go see it, and then I had to go to work. And oh, I was man. so bummed to miss it. So then when Fantasia Fest came around, I tried desperately to figure out how to break any internet rule I could to, to make <laughs> my computer seem like I was in Canada, whatever I had to do, and I couldn't make it work. So I just reached out to him and was like, look, dude. I'm dying to see this movie. <laughs> and uh, he was kind you enough. You tried to take, twice. That's right. I tried so many times. He took mercy on me and, and uh, let me watch a copy. And I sent him a, a little book that I had found a couple of years ago that's, that's sort of like a deep dive into Creepshow, uh, sort of the making of and the history of Creepshow. As, as a th- and, and I sent it to him because Mortuary Collection, like you said, is such a, has such a clear, straight, forward lineage to creep mm. show and and uh, you know other aaron coots did uh, um uh, scare package a couple of years right. ago that's so much fun totally different tonally but um, even even so ghost stories came out uh, pretty recently i thought it was yep. a pretty great anthology as well to answer the question when someone says <laughs> you can't do anything in this short form i just beg to differ i mean i also <laughs> grew up reading you know night shift by stephen king was one of my favorite books growing up. Mm -hmm. I read it cover to cover several times. And it's a collection of short stories. It really kind of got me again, it primed my pump for this stuff. I mean, (laughs) I just, I'm very open to a short little shot of of something fun. Oh, man, I'm gonna I'm long winded today. Joe, I got the I haven't talked to anyone except my wife and kids in in six (laughs) months. So I'm just letting (laughs) it rip today. This is what it's all about. Uh So this is a 1982 movie directed by George Romero, known for, of course, among other things, the Night of the Living Dead franchise. And although his uh, his work is pretty cynical and dour, I feel like, compared to the bright and lighthearted feel of this movie. And I'm curious if you gravitate to his other work at all compared to this. I I haven't really dug in much into his other work. I've only seen clips of Night of the Living Dead, I'm embarrassed to say, and it just hasn't been a thing that 
like you said, to answer your question, I don't gravitate necessarily toward it. I don't think, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. George Romero directed the hell out of this movie, but I don't know that it's the George Romero of it necessarily. Right. The, what you would generally call the George Romero style that draws me to it. I think it's really interesting that his work here, so Stephen King is is the writer of the, of the screenplay for this, and he's also an actor in it. And I really feel like Stephen King working with Romero here kind of helps to bring him out of his shell a little bit because, like, when I look at Day of the Dead, which is, like, just the most depressed movie like there's like almost no zombies in it because it's just about how humanity is our own worst enemy and how we'll tear ourselves apart and it's it's just so intense and then you look at this and you're like i see the king in it i see the maximum overdrive with the vending machine shooting out the soda cans and the giant green goblin head uh, on the truck like he has that sort of sense of humor that I think really is benefiting Romero here. Yeah. Well, Stephen King has that throughout his st- look. No question. He gets dark as well. But right. uh, Stephen King is, I think, known for his willingness to kind of squish at anything. I mean, like you said, the vending machine in, in Maximum Overdrive, the blob in Creepshow 2, the, you know, he, uh, not the blob, the raft, it's called. Sorry, everyone. Anyway, um, <laughs> Look, we can't be expected to remember every single name. Thank you, George. Oh God, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I do. I look. The guy's known for being for having a sort of glee with this stuff and a willingness. I mean, look at his performance in Creepshow, and we'll get there, obviously. But he was he was bananas. Like he just sort of yeah. let it rip sometimes, and I I appreciate that, and I I have definitely attributed that aspect of the movie to him. Although, again, it's not entirely fair because I don't. I have a much broader understanding of Stephen King's work than I do of George Romero's work. I mean, this is, I'm not trying to say that George Romero doesn't have a sense of humor, because if, especially if you look at something like um, uh, Dawn of the Dead, you know, there's there's some jokes and stuff in there, but it's definitely not <laughs> the same kind of humor that Stephen King has. So I definitely attribute that more towards him as well. And they had been friends for a really long time before they made this movie. King actually even made his screen debut in Romero's uh, Night Riders, and on that set, they were like, look, we got it. if we're going to ever do this, we, we're going to do it now. We got to team up for real here. Wonder Twins activate. King writes this screenplay. He bases two of the five vignettes off short stories he'd already written. And like we kind of alluded to, they just wanted this movie to serve as an homage to the movies and comics and everything that they loved growing up. Uh, it also helps that they brought in Romero's longtime collaborator and podcast favorite, Tom Savini, uh, <laughs> to the effects. And they create this comic book style. He's really great at it. And Michael Gornick doing the cinematography in this movie. I mean, it just sticks out in such a positive light, pun intended, in Gornick's case. (laughs) There's so much love for the source material. And it's so fascinating to see that lineage that you were talking about where, like, it all goes back in, like, these stages. There's the generations of it moving forward and each one really captures something really special i think yeah and uh, yes it, it stylistically each is slightly different from not and so in some cases vastly different from the others and obviously sort of story and drive wise each piece is unique i just think it's it's a real buffet of of horror stuff <laughs> especially like you said, for maybe a, a a younger person who is just dipping their toe into this world. And while there are still, I would argue, genuinely unsettling moments in the movie, 
overall, it's not as like scarring as uh, some of the other things you might check into <laughs> right. when you're that age. No, absolutely. And this was also the first attempt to bring a horror comic to life. There had been comic book movies done, like Superman and Popeye, but while those maintain sort of a comic book sensibility, they're very clearly an adaptation of comic books done for the screen, as opposed to Creepshow managing to kind of bring the comic to life. I mean, they do this with animated transitions, illustrated frames, and as I mentioned before, the lighting is so important to this movie. Most of the scenes are low-key lighting with just deep shadows and high contrast, but in important scenes, the sets become sort of bathed in this absolutely gorgeous deep blues and reds, almost like a giallo film, and these unnatural lighting moments really help to accentuate the horror in the scene. And I'm curious about your opinion of the deliberate deployment of this affectation, especially compared to something like Dick Tracy or Sin City that has the distinct unrealistic comic book aesthetic the whole way through instead of just being used as accent points. Oh, wow. Well, look, like you said, their decision to make the comic book not only sort of the jumping off point, but the prime storytelling and style device is what sets it apart. I mean, there, there was a Tales from the Crypt movie in the 70s. Is that right? Uh, that, right. It's like that, Christmassy, or like at least the first... Well, there, uh, there's one, yeah, there's, the one, there's one story in it that is a Christmas one that, that was then redone for the Tales from the Crypt TV show as well. But, right. And it's really good, and people love that movie, and, and I, they should. But, like you said, it, it is an adaptation of the Tales from the Crypt Deal. It's not a sort of, uh, I'm trying to, like, lifting up of the comic book, where, whereas rather than pulling out of the comic book and say, extracting it and saying, here are some stories we can tell, this is right, like... Right, the no, essence no. of it. Yeah, right. We're, we're going to actually raise the comic book itself to right. our thing. And I, I just, um, like you said, the colors of it, as a kid, I don't know if I fully... No, rephrase. As a kid, I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> how important that is to these stories. As a kid, I was frightened when the end of Father's Day, which is the first segment in the movie, there's this like, blah, and uh, <laughs> big reds and blues, like you said, really bright with big brassy sounds right in the camera. I found it to be sort of unsettling. Now yeah. I watch it. Now I've seen that movie uh, many, many times, but <laughs> those moments are less unsettling and more sort of just you know, stylistically beautiful. Yeah, you really like soak in them. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really, I, I love the audacity to just swing for it and say, we're not, we're not pretending we're something we're not. We, this is right. a, this is a comic book that came to life. And yeah, so and they're long shots too. Oh, absolutely. No, they roll around in it. And I think that, that part of it is to show, well, as you were saying, it is their love letter to, those EC comics that they grew up on, it's to show sort of how wrong Tom Atkins' character, the dad in the wraparound <laughs> story, is. Yeah. How this isn't right. just junk. This is a legit storytelling and mm -hmm. a way for your imagination to be triggered. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's really great because it's not 
just used in those moments. It's also used more subtly at times leading up to the horror moments to create that sense of unease. And it works to help create a moment of surprise without relying on like heavy gore or anything, because this is, it's a friggin' comic book. It's mm-hmm. fun for kids and adults alike. You know, uh, it's, it, they really, I think walk the, uh, walk the line really well there. And those transitions that happen even within a story, um, the mm-hmm. one that's popping into my head is something to tide you over with the, yeah. the, like, is that the center? Yeah, it's the middle story. But that there's a lot of sort of meanwhile, and it you move from one panel of the comic to the other. And it doesn't yeah. freeze frame necessarily. It's sometimes moving video that then a panel slides across the screen and you're into the next scene. Whereas in a in a you know a standard cinematic storytelling, that might just be a long dissolve or a fade to black and a fade up or whatever it is. They just kind of mind that way of telling a story in uh, however they could. Yeah. Transitions are something that don't always get a lot of attention paid to them in terms of like the way that they're executed, but when they're done exceedingly well, I feel like people do notice and that it, it really stands out as a positive. Uh, another franchise that comes to mind that really handles the transitions well is um, the Final Destination franchise. Really, <laughs> like, they they are just constantly, like, having the screen follow, like, a car passing across or, like, a window rolling down or something. It, it's done really well, and uh, people who are kind of looking for interesting ways to transition if you if you're a, a screenwriter out there who for some reason <laughs> listens to this podcast <laughs> or one. even if you just yeah i'm sure there's one or even if you're just interested in it go check out the transitions in creep show and the final destination franchise can i, I, can I take this moment to say that i really enjoy the final destination franchise like, thank you legit. finally another one. <laughs> oh no absolutely that that i don't remember which one it's in is it Three, maybe four or five uh, w- with the, the tanning bed. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, man, where she just sizzles in there. Oh, yeah, that's that, <laughs> it's rough. That uh, it takes a lot. These guys, you know, we all become a little inured to some of the spooky stuff in movies. That one was one where my feet, I saw it in the movie theater. My feet were up on the seat with me <laughs> and my hands on my forehead. And I was just like, no, no, no. It's tough. No. That's a tough one. No. I mean, as a, a heavily bespectacled person, I really in five when uh, she's in, she's getting like laser vision surgery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. one just really shook me at my it's core. It's not cool. <laughs> Um, so, uh, this was a mini review of the final destination <laughs> franchise. Go check it out. The other best um, <laughs> horror movies ever made. <laughs> One thing that I thought was also interesting about creep show, however, is that it was released in early November because of this weird strategy that did wind up paying off. The studio gave it like a four week trial run in the Boston area in July. And it did great there. And they said, all right, pull it from all theaters. We want to get it as close to Halloween without competing with the October release of Halloween 3. And so they banked on people still being in a spooky mood in early November, and Halloween fizzled out quickly because of the lack of Michael Myers in it, and so Creepshow was kind of left to clean up because people were dissatisfied with what they had gotten during the traditional scary movie season. And I think that that's... it's. What a weird, bold stroke for them to do this. If you skipped Halloween 3... Because you there was no Michael Myers, but you still wanted some Tom Atkins within that <laughs> thirty days. Good news, yeah. 
He's <laughs> in this other movie that's coming out just a couple weeks later. The perfect storm for them as well. And uh, it did get some mixed reviews, but thankfully that didn't affect the movie too much. It made $21 million domestically on a budget of $8 million. And this is, in fact, Romero's only movie to open at number one, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess I frankly find it interesting that it opened at number one that's kind of amazing yeah like like i said people were uh, they were disappointed with what they got and so they were uh, eager for that horror satisfaction but not only did it do well then i mean the movie has even continued to grow in its appreciation as well i think thanks to king and romero's obvious affection for the source material and its softening of a cynical streak that does tend to run through both of them you know it's it's kind of a nice breath of fresh air when you're looking back at these two guys careers well definitely Um, and and i guess i'm happy to know that stephen king looks on it with some affection i know he was overall dissatisfied with his moment in the spotlight if i'm right. not mistaken <laughs> which i presume yeah. we're gonna uh, make our way there but i uh yes yeah he 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 had some feelings as i recall <laughs> yeah and so getting into the actual movie now we open up on this prologue which is this young boy named billy who's getting disciplined by his father, Stan, for reading a horror comic titled Creepshow. And Billy is played by King's son, Joe, who is now a well-regarded horror author in his own right. And as you said, his dad is uh, Tom Atkins. It's a really strong start for the cast, and it it does continue. I mean, this is an absolutely stacked cast the whole way through. And I like that they also kind of establish right away that there's going to be some... They, like, put you in the right mindset of, like, looking back... Based, just based on the random insert shots of, like, the kids' toys and everything. Like, there's the Rodans, and, uh, you know, you see some, like, classic Hulk and everything. And it's uh, a well-set-up thing. It feels like a real kid's room with the stuff just kind of, like, strewn everywhere. Oh, yeah. And after Stan gets all upset about Billy reading this horror comic, he, he throws the comic in the garbage, and he reminds his wife that he has to be hard on Billy because he doesn't want him reading that horror crap. And that's why God made fathers. That's why God made fathers, babe. That's why. God made fathers. <laughs> then he sips his scotch. That delivery is so perfect. It's like so self-satisfied. Oh, he's, he just nails it. The worst. <laughs> and Billy is upstairs all pissed off, and he wishes that Tom Atkins would rot in hell. And he hears a sound at the window, and surprise, it's the creep, the host of the comic book. And it's just this great practical ghoul. It's a really fun prop and leads into a great animated opening. It's so I just. I don't look, I won't pretend that I remember the feeling I had watching every single moment of this movie the first time. There are moments, there are flashes that I definitely remember from that first viewing. But I can only imagine that for someone seeing this movie for the first time, when that creep is at the window and it transitions into that animated thing and he kind of does that come hither with his hand and mm-hmm. and you follow him out the window, it's it's stunning. It's still so pretty to look at. The whole credit sequence is pretty. It's just all pretty. I like that movie. It really helps to create that sort of atmosphere of the comic and and really let you sort of be like, all right, we're going to be kind of half in, half out of reality this whole time, Yeah, which is, is really great. And it leads into the first story, which, as you said, is called Father's Day. This was an original story written by King for the film. And uh, we open up on this uh, upper crust, snooty family gossiping and insulting each other, including Ed Harris as Hank, uh, Hank Blaine, a man who married into this family. 
And they start to regale him with the story of Dottie Aunt Bedelia, who supposedly murdered her father. And, you know, they say supposedly, but we see that she does. And they this is where they transition into the flashback with comic book panels. This is another example of that. And it's like you said, it's just so rad. Like, it, it really helps to create this sort of active feeling as you transition into it. The, yeah, like you said, the tone is set completely by this first story. I have to interject just a little tiny tale, if I may. I, a few years ago, had the fortune of doing a play with Ed Harris, and we uh, were doing Buried Child in New York, which, if you know the play at all, I played Bradley, and he played Dodge, and Bradley is Dodge's son, and Bradley is missing a part of his leg, so Bradley spends a lot of the time in the play on the couch, because it's... Mm. uh, it's a play and we can't right. <laughs> digitally take out the leg later. And I happen to have both legs. So I was on the couch a lot. And during a break, Ed, Ed's character Dodge uh, sat by the, the couch a lot. And we were sort of, our heads were right by each other. And we, we were at a rehearsal and we went into a, into a break. And this was early on in the rehearsal process. And I said, Ed, I gotta, I just gotta tell you creep show is <laughs> one of my all time favorite movies. And he, sort of chuckled and he said, I think I, uh, I think I danced a little in that one, didn't I? Oh, I said, yeah. Oh, Ed, <laughs> you did. You certainly did. And then he oh, went man. on to ask, he, he did ask if I had ever seen, and I think you mentioned it earlier, that Romero movie, Night, Night Riders? Night Riders, yeah. Night Riders. Because I think Ed is in that one, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he said that, uh, I still loathe these many years later, haven't watched it, but Ed said, oh, you got that one's real crazy. So apparently Ed gets real <laughs> crazy in that one. But I do know he danced in Creepshow, and it was oh. the best. Yeah, I mean, he gives Crispin Glover in, uh, <laughs> the, in the final chapter a run for yes, his money. he does. Although Crispin <laughs> Glover, that's a tough one to beat. They're both, sure they're both so very special, those moments. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I might give... Glover the edge on this one, but but Ed Harris definitely has some moves. It's tough. Listeners, let us know what you think. Which one is the superior dance sequence? <laughs> and the aforementioned father is Nathan Grantham, uh, a miser who made his fortune bootlegging. And he was killed on Father's Day after Bedelia having endured a life of putting up with abuse up to and including his orchestration of the murder of her boyfriend, uh-huh. <laughs> Yarbrough, in a hunting accident. You know, this is it's all punctuated by the lighting and these fun comic book affectations. It's a, a great sort of look back at, at how this was set up. But all these years later, Bedelia, played by Vivica Linfers in a delightful turn, mm-hmm. screeches to a halt, as they say. And she stops at her father's grave to meditate and leave a flower. She sits there and we hear a ghostly voice demanding cake, the scariest dessert. <laughs> and uh, she flashes back to the deed being done with a marble ashtray. Well, something I thought was interesting is that that ashtray makes an appearance in all the segments. Um, and you might just be like, oh, it's just reusing a prop. But it shows up in the kid's room at the very end. And even in 1982, he's pretty young to be smoking. So I think it's a choice. <laughs> also, I think that ashtray, maybe I'm wrong, but there's a television series that has since been made of Creepshow that's currently on the streaming service Shudder. And I believe it's Greg Nicotero that is running that show. And I uh, believe that Ashtray has made some appearances on that television show as well. 
Wow. Yeah. That's so. awesome. I, I mean, for people who don't know, Greg Nicotero was a huge part of Tom Savini's special effects business, and, and they worked together on a lot of films, especially the Living Dead movies. And it's re- it was really awesome that he was the showrunner for this and that it really felt like it was in the right hands. And yeah. I think that the show does really capture that same sort of feeling in a lot of it. I, I think that he's done a really good job with the show. And so it wouldn't surprise me, and I'm delighted to hear that it uh, it does make some appearances. I believe there, that's so. the case, and I uh, am going to take this as a, yet another in my series of trying to do anything I can. I will be a dead body on the Creep Show <laughs> television show. I don't care. I don't care if I'm a picture on a mantle from like a baseball game. Whatever it has to be, I have. I'm dying to Come do on, that Greg. show someday. Come on, Greg. Let's do <laughs> Get it. Get my man Rich on there. <laughs> um. Uh, but yeah, so she's she's at this tomb and she drunkenly reminisces about the murder, but she spills her bottle of Jim Beam. Nathan, famously more of a bullet bourbon guy, emerges from the ground. He's all rotted and maggoty and he wants to claim this Father's Day cake he never got. And when I was reading about how they did the effects, I thought it was the way that they phrased it was they did it with a combination of Rice Krispies and real maggots. And I was like, oh, so they could have just done real maggots. Yeah. Why, why do the Rice Krispies? Just do they the really maggots. buried the lead there. And, uh, and uh, it was gross. That's a really gross thing. But it, yeah. I mean, it comes across. It looks gross as hell. It's a great effect. So, oh, yeah. Nathan kills Bedelia there at the gravestone, and this is while Ed is back at the house having his dance party with his wife, Cass, the best. and uh, it's great, and he gets scolded by his mother-in-law because he's having this fun dance party, and uh, he goes out to smoke a cigarette, and he wanders into the graveyard, and the graveyard is awash in blue, and it's really, it just it's so nice looking, <laughs> and he's promptly murdered via a pushed-over gravestone. So Nathan's actually a psychic zombie, which is classically the worst kind of zombie zombie so you don't want to tangle with those and nathan sneakily murders the cook mrs danvers as well before getting the drop on sylvia and choking her out and the remaining two are two are they're scared and they're like okay we gotta go look for ed harris's character and they're shocked to find nathan finally with his cake which is just a a sylvia's severed head topped with whipped cream and some candies and you just get these great reaction shots it's so Perfect. Well, the way these reaction shots this. are what we were <clears throat> kind of talking about earlier with that comic book lighting. But there's also this cool, and they do this at some point in every story. There's this cool, like, hand drawn border that mm-hmm. goes around the screen that looks like the bordering of a comic book panel. And I know I, I believe we've mentioned at some point that they clearly used comic book style as inspiration for this movie. But it's, it's just such a cool, like, again, it's just audacious. It's a willingness yeah. to say, we're just going to do it like it's a comic book. And I, I, I love those little moments in this thing. They are such strange little snippets of moments, but there, there is sort of that almost Kubrickian silent scream thing that happens in just about every one of these stories. And it's yeah. bordered with these hand-drawn, really cool borders and then, and then just big brassy 
lighting choices. The one that really stuck out to me this watch through was the Roach one. Yeah. Like, man, it, it just looks so good when it comes in from the sides. Uh, it, it's really great. And while the ending is left ambiguous in the film of this short story, with Nathan kind of just gloating over a terrified Cass and Richard in this freeze frame, the comic book that acts as the novelization of Creepshow implies that uh, Nathan blew out their candles. So big rip to them. They did not make it out. <laughs> despite him getting his cake. And this transitions into the second story, the Stephen King one that he is in, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. And this vignette is based on King's short story, Weeds. Jordy Verrill is played by King himself. And, um, you know, this is one that is divisive, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I I happen to really enjoy Same. The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Same. Um, I think that the campiness and over-the-top nature of it is, it's, I mean, obviously it's on purpose, but I think that it, it really hits the tone really well. I mean, I was reading that he was trying to play it like um, Wiley E. Coyote when he's falling, and I, I think that that's, he, he nails it, he I think. He does. Um, I, I, look, also, the, the final three stories that follow the first two, right? So, so you have Father's Day is the first one, and then Lo- Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Then something to tide you over the crate and they're creeping up on you are all done really pretty straight, like really yeah. pretty dramatically. But obviously the second story, Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill is bananas. And the first yeah. <laughs> story sort of sort of um, has one foot in each style. Yeah, it's, it's a little it's, sillier. Too. It's campy, um, but it also plays it for for straight horror at times. For me. Jordy Verrill is a perfect sort of counterpoint to the later three stories. I like that we whip up this crazy frenzy in the second story that is just goofy. And P.S., and I know you're going to go through the the telling of the story, but it ends in a very dark way. Like, it, it does not pull a punch at the end. It's throughout sort of goofy and light, but boy, that ending is about as dark as any moment in the movie. Yeah, and I think that, um, as you say, it does help to create a balance in the storytelling throughout the whole thing, because if it was just Father's Day being like a little campy and then four told completely straight, Father's Day would really stick out. But Mm -hmm. by having this one that is on the opposite end of it, it creates this middle ground that it's allowed to live in that I think is really important to creating sort of a balanced tone throughout the whole thing. Absolutely. And if you look back at those EC comics, by the way, there are some stories that are goofy. And then mm-hmm. there are some stories that are terrifying and gross and uh, unnerving. And I think that you have to have room for that. I mean, same as, you know, if you look through a Stephen King short story anthology book, you're going to you're going to find things that tonally sort of hit all of the notes. And yeah. and I personally, I know that that Stephen King has probably remained self-conscious about his performance in this thing. And I and I know as an as a, a an actor, it is impossible to divorce yourself entirely from a performance you've given and see it in in completely uh, unbiased eyes. Right. Impossible to be objective. It's impossible. But I wish I wish it was possible for him because it is, I think, truly delightful. And if he owned it as being bonkers, if he just was like, well, I just went for it, we'd all be like, you yeah. sure did, Steve, and it was great. <laughs> uh, we would celebrate it with him if he was open to that. I agree. Come to us, Steve. Let us love you. <laughs> 
uh, and he is this huge caricature. He's a, a buck-toothed nunkhead, and uh, a glowing meteorite lands on his farm, and he's hopeful that it will be worth at least $200 to a local college, and he can pay off that bank loan. The classic American story, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> So good. And, and yeah, I, I, he's hamming it up. And I also, I like that he says, I'll be dipped in shit if that isn't a meteor. And it's not. It's a meteorite. That's <laughs> so right. So get out the dipping apparatus, everyone. <laughs> get your shit and your dipper, because here's the <laughs> So in addition to being a meteorite, it's also too hot to touch. And so he douses it with water. And the contraction in it causes it to split in half, and it spills this glowing blue substance that gets on his hands, and it soaks into the earth as he walks home sadly, mumbling oh, about Jordan, gluing the stone. <laughs> and outside, the area that got soaked is like this big planty mess. And after a little bit, we see that his fingers also have some kind of plant on them. And he fears that they'll need to be amputated in one of several amazing fantasy sequences. I love these intense, like, doctor caricatures that he goes through. Um, I think that they're so fun. Oh, and, it's, it's great. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. No, no, it is great. I agree. And he, so he doesn't call the doctor, but he does notice that it's spread to his tongue where he was sucking them. And so I feel like e even in this very lighthearted sequence, that moment for me still is like, oh, oh, dear. Oh, <laughs> like, oh it's gross. Is... It's gross. Yeah. And it continues to spread. And Jordy panics when he sees outside. And so he's just like, I'm, I'm not dealing with this. And he goes to town on a picture of screwdrivers. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most sort of ham-fistedly made cocktails you'll ever see in a movie, by the way. It is just dumpage. Yeah. And it, it, does no, he mix it no with measuring. like a screwdriver or something? Like an actual screwdriver? I think he mixes it. Maybe I'm making this up. I can't. Or maybe, no, it's the bottleneck. I think he sticks the bottle in yeah. the thing and stirs it with the neck of the bottle. I mean, it's a real, real he, he, fancy drink. Like we said, he goes for it. He does. <laughs> televangelist's comments are eerily applicable to what's happening as uh, as he's drinking this and he falls asleep but when he wakes up he sees that he's got this big beard of grass and seemingly around his nethers as well <laughs> he just looks down and he goes there too <laughs> you go you go oh no jordy and he, he starts to take a bath, but he gets haunted by his dad first, who warns him that the plant wants water and not to get in the tub. But the itching is unbearable, and he's sure he's already a goner, so he gives in and he dives into the bathwater. And again, even in this lighthearted scene, it, there's an escalation here. The ne Like, the next morning, mm. Jordy and his farm are so completely covered that... It kind of takes you by surprise at what uh, intense moment it is when you when you realize what's happening. Yeah, there's a real. <laughs> I don't want to alienate anyone, but it's a real waking up the day after the election in 2016 feeling. It's a real. Uh, that's I'm not. I'm not speaking for George. Uh, he is speaking for me. <laughs> I'm only speaking for myself. Uh, but there's this feeling. Uh, it, it's just this, like you say, it's this creeping horror. I mean, that's the, the whole bit with this story is that creeping horror that slowly starts to regenerate uh, all over the place. And when he goes to sleep, however many hours he was asleep, some things continued to go while he was, it didn't all sleep. So that, yeah. that moment, he's a grass monster. He's a grass monster. <laughs> and when he finally, 
Well, uh, I'll let you tell the ending here, but uh, go, you go ahead, and then I'll, I'll come. Yeah, he he grabs his shotgun, and he, he prays to God that the one time his luck will be in is just so that he can kill himself, oh. and he blows the top of his head off with this shotgun and it is such a punch in the gut of like poor Jordy. <laughs> it's poor Jordy and that what comes raining down, what blasts out of that shotgun there when when he's hit, it's not gore, it's not blood, it's grass and dirt that yeah. all come down and it is as a kid and now as an adult I retain still a little seedling of that feeling of that is a horrifying moment for me of like yeah. oh shit it was throughout him and when he does that yeah that please god let me die. <laughs> it's so it's so upsetting and desperate and dark and ooh yeah that that moment's up there for me of the truly horrific moments of the movie that one that little moment is up there they don't even let up you don't even get to like be like well at least it's stopped because the radio weather forecast we hear it announcing heavy rains are predicted in castle county which we also see a sign for castle rock putting this squarely in king's like in-house universe is going to turn green so fast it'll be miraculous uh sort of alluding to this space plant and it's just so Lovecrafty and yeah. color out of space. Like, th- I just think this is such a great story. It has the laughs. It has the punctuated moments that help to make it feel real and lived in and, and interesting. And it's it's just such a great ending to, to cap it off. So yeah. grim. And it kind of helps lead you back into the tone of what's going to be coming as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and in the animated interlude, one thing that I thought was interesting that I had not noticed before is you see the ad for the voodoo doll with yeah. the mail order uh, clipped out already. And so maybe that'll come back later. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, that, that in, uh, animated interlude uh, leads into something to tide you over, which is, I think, a really, really fun story as well. Well, you know, as a kid who had watched the Naked Gun movies and watched Police Squad when it was re-airing on, it wasn't Comedy Central then, it was whatever, Ha or the Comedy Channel or whatever it was showing on. But, you know, Leslie Nielsen was a goof, a, a total yeah. a total goof. You couldn't take him seriously. And to have your introduction to his more serious side be in drop dead in the middle of of creep show, it was uh, and and that Ted. Da- I mean, I'm 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 getting ahead of us here, but Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson are are the two main leads in this middle story. Two guys known in my mind for comedy. I, I think Leslie right. Nielsen had quite a dramatic background at that point that I just wasn't aware of. But and so to see them step fully out of those crazy comedic situations and be in this, which is a yeah. deeply sinister sort of revenge story. It's uh, it was, it was pretty shocking. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that he did kind of make uh, that transition from serious actor to comedy star. He, I mean, I, really only knew him as a, a comedy actor myself. I remember being introduced to him through wrongfully accused was yeah. uh, just a, such an amazing introduction to him. And, even even in this and in a lot of his work, he's still the straight man in those like the the situations that he finds himself in oh, yeah. are funny because he's taking them seriously. And so 
it's it's really fascinating to me that even though he's still just being serious in this role, it's so chilling. It's so it, it sends shivers up your spine. The and he's he's being so intense and he made this transition and then is playing off of that, of our expectation of what we know Leslie Nielsen to be now. I just think it's great. And then, you know, of course he is still a goof in real life. He, he had a fart machine on set and he was liberal with the use of it much to Danson's delight. So, (laughs) so, you know, it's not uh, it's not all serious with Leslie, which is nice. That's right. (laughs) But yeah, so we open up on this uh, robed Ted Danson as Harry Wentworth, and he opens up the door to his apartment after some determined knocking, and it's Leslie Nielsen playing uh, Richard Vickers. And Vickers has found out that Harry is his wife Rebecca's lover, and he's exacting his revenge by luring them out to his secluded beach property, and then at gunpoint, burying them up to their necks below the high tide line. And the scene where he's explaining the situation to Harry... Just rules so hard. It's so good and scary. And you're like, Leslie, my man, this is really intense. And it's, I just love it so much. One of my favorite sh- stories that I read as a kid, um, Cracked Magazine, uh, the people oh, yeah. who made Cracked Magazine made a, I can never remember the name of it, but they made a horror magazine for like three issues. It didn't last, wow. or maybe it lasted a little long. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But in there, they did a, a, a sort of graphic adaptation of, I never know if I'm pronouncing the word right, but the cask of Amontillado? Amontillado? Amontillado. Amontillado. Okay. The, the Poe story. And, I love it. My um, favorite Poe, in it, fact. And it, it has since, you know, now that I've read a lot of Poe, it became one of my favorite Poes as well. And this story has some of that, of yeah. uh, what's his name, Fortunato? Uh, is he the yep. guy? That, yeah, who who gets uh, you know built into the brick wall? The way it's told to him at the beginning really rang for me in this moment of Nielsen sort of laying out, "Here's what's going to happen, and all yeah. you have to do is hold your breath, and you'll be fine." And it's like, oh <laughs> shit, that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really great. It's played so and like the the one way that they get like a little bit of laughs in is the crab stuff, oh. which I think is really fun. But even that, it's it, you're laughing, but it's like it's, it's you're like oh that crab's gonna yeah. through your fingers because it's <laughs> a very for me anyway. That's an upsetting image of not yeah. being able to bat away something that could even just pinch at you. It's like, oh, 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 that's a very creepy moment. Yeah, it's a very uneasy laughter. Yes. And he explains, like you said, that they have this chance of survival if they can hold their breath long enough for the sand to loosen and that they can break free and escape. But obviously this is not, this is not a realistic (laughs) expectation. And so Vickers has set up these closed circuit TV cameras so that he can watch them die from the comfort of his beach house. And uh, Harry looks right into the camera and he, he vows revenge as he gets covered by the tide. And I love, I think this might be my favorite shot in the whole damn movie when his head is completely submerged yeah. and the red glow is in the water. So, and he's um, sort of c- coughing, trying to hold his breath, but the bubbles are coming out of his nose. He's kind of mm-hmm. <clears throat> that thing. Oh God, Ooh. it's so, because you, you see him sort of looking around, hoping because the waves have been coming in and going out, coming in and going out, and now they're starting to come in and stay. And you yeah. see him like realize in that moment, this is not this is not gonna This is well. it. This is the one. Oh God. It's a it's a really, really great moment. And 
The next day, Richard returns to the spot where he buried Harry, and he finds the ruined camera tripod, but no sign of Harry's corpse. And he's perturbed, but he chalks it up to the current. And unfortunately, it wasn't the current, because we see some footprints leading out of the waves, and the two lovers have returned as double water zombies, the worst kind of zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At least among the most gross kinds of zombies. At least. The, the, uh, I water, mean, the water gurgling in their throats when they speak yeah. and sort of running out of their eyes and mouth and nose. Ugh, God, it's nasty. Forget what I said about psychic zombies. Nathan <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. has nothing on these guys. <laughs> yeah, they look great. They're all waterlogged and seaweeded, and it's it's really just spectacular work. And um, Richard barricades himself in the bedroom, but they just appear inside because they're teleporting waterlogged zombies, <laughs> the worst kind of zombies. <laughs> and he shoots at them but the bullets don't do anything and the couple wind up doing the same beach trick to richard who appears buried in the beach facing the approaching tide and we see two sets of footprints disappearing back into the surf and there's this gorgeous lighting and the tide is rising and he laughs hysterically and he screams i can hold my breath for a long time and then the water splashes him and there's that great it goes back to the comic book as the water sort of splashes him and you see his eyes go wide as he has that moment of realization and then it mm-hmm. transitions to the comic book again and it's just perfectly timed. It's just perfect. Yeah. Um, there's also an interesting alternate ending that I was reading about to this story. How's um, that? Yeah, I was reading that there was this ending that would have been a little more ambiguous about the zombies in that Richard calls the police in a panic And when they come by, they laugh at his story, thinking he's drunk. And Richard tries to prove it by showing them the security footage of them accosting him and threatening him. And the TV instead plays Richard telling Harry his plan. And so Richard claims he's been set up and the police take him into custody and it smash cuts to the murder trial and he gets convicted and sentenced to death row. And in the gas chamber, we get that same closing where he laughs hysterically and says, I can hold my breath for a long, long time. Oh, that's crazy. Right? I don't think I've ever heard. I've read a lot of things about Creepshow. I don't think I'd ever heard that story. I, I was doing some pretty, pretty deep research. Today. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, Did uh, they shoot it? Uh, I know. I think that it was just a scripted idea, but okay. I'm curious what you think about about this alternate ending like it, you know obviously there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in the ending we got but i'm yeah. curious what you think about this alternate uh, uh take that well look been. if that had been the ending i probably would have thought it was the best ending ever i i you know for me this movie <laughs> doesn't do anything wrong so uh if that was the choice they had made i probably would have stood with them uh by that choice but i mean trying to picture it i don't know it might have worked I mean, then you get a sort of a telltale heart thing almost of him, yeah. of the cops. Uh, maybe, he, maybe he didn't see the zombies. Maybe the zombies right. weren't even there. Maybe it's just he's going insane. That Poe aspect and like linearity between the opening is yeah. kind of what makes me believe that this story exists. I mean, it's possible that I've been misled about this alternate ending, but that the fact that it does kind of have that mirror image of the beginning half you know if it's a lie it's a damn good lie (laughs) well but it's i mean it makes sense it is a sensical ending i think it would have you know the 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 next story in the movie the crate i think itself is like 46 minutes long or something and Mm -hmm. the other stories just simply had to be shorter and i think with that ending this uh something tied you over would have been probably too long um Mm -hmm. but i also really like the sort of sweet revenge of him getting exactly what he gave and uh so i I guess look i i think i 
ultimately, obviously, prefer and appreciate this ending. But I do uh, also appreciate you telling me about the potential <laughs> for that other ending because it is something to picture, and I think it could have worked, especially with that same last line, I can hold my breath for a long time, which has a similar, he has a similar chance of success in that moment uh, as right. he does to the water one. So. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I also think that the water one does work better in terms of a like a direct one to two. We see this is exactly what he did. Yeah. Um, but that ponus of it, I do appreciate. I think that it's pretty cool. So uh, a fun thing. But this uh, the comic book cut leads to the crate based on the short story, The Crate. And um, <clears throat> we meet, uh, we open up on Adrian Barbeau playing Billy Northrup, who is an aggressive lush <laughs> to the embarrassment of Professor Henry, played by Hal Holbrook, who is her husband, and she is constantly putting him down. One just fact of trivia that I saw about this movie that I thought was really interesting is that Tom Atkins and Adrian Barbeau have been in four movies together and never shared the screen. Yeah, that's right. The, well, The Fog... Right, which in which they never. She's always in the lighthouse, and he's always out with Jamie Lee right. Curtis. Escape from New York, I think, was another oh, right. one. Yep, I'm trying to think. And of uh, I'm forgetting the fourth one, but uh, that trivia is out there, folks. Huh. If you want to <laughs> check that out, but yeah, just uh, just a little piece of uh, interesting trivia that I found. And meanwhile, at the college that he works at, Professor Henry, a janitor named Mike drops a quarter and finds a wooden storage crate marked Arctic Expedition, June 19th, 1834. Uh, This is hidden under a staircase, and he notifies Dexter Stanley, who's a zoology professor there, of the find. And he heads over to Anderson Hall to check it out. Meanwhile, back at the party, they're they're like at this like staff mixer kind of thing. Henry fantasizes about killing his wife to the applause of the rest of the party. And it's like really kind of dark the way that you like when you step back for a moment and you think about this guy just like zoning out at a party thinking about killing his wife. You're like, dear Lord. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't like her a lot. Well, I mean, that becomes clearer. But also, by the way, Hal Holbrook also in the fog. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. Uh, And Stanley and Mike decide that they're going to open up this crate and the cuts back and forth between them work so well to help build some tension as they're like working on the actual opening. Um, I think that that's just a really great creative choice there because it could have been very flat and boring. And instead, they use this to build that tension and out jumps this ape like creature, the worst kind of zombie. No, wait, that's not right. <laughs> this was, in fact, the beast nicknamed Fluffy, Fluffy. by Romero. Yes. And he had uh, a lot of input from Rob Botton of The Thing fame because uh, Savini called him up to figure out how to do his first fully animatronic puppet. And in what seems to me to be an homage to that work, uh, the crate is stamped with ship to Julie Carpenter from Antarctic Expedition. So it seems like that could at least be some uh, some thing illusion. Tip of the hat. Yes. Exactly. And it promptly pulls Mike into the crate. <laughs> Killing. And, and it's pretty upsetting. That whole bit where Mike gets pulled in there and the bloodletting that occurs is Mm -hmm. it's that that's where I, you know, I have a 12 year old uh, daughter and uh, you know, we've been talking about, Oh, that's kind of the right age. That scene is pretty, (laughs) I mean, I suppose that's the, well, there's a little moment in there creeping up on you too, but I was going to say, this is about as gory as this movie gets is, especially because I think this is, it hold the effect holds up better, I think, yeah. in this because 
let's just say uh, the ex- the body explosion that comes later is definitely not a dummy. <laughs> so, which I mean, it's to be expected. It's it's 1982 and yeah. uh, or 87, 82? No, 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 82. 82. Yeah. So you know, well, they're doing their best, folks. That's right. <laughs> uh, so it kills and eats the body of Mike, leaving only his boot behind. And Stanley flees into the path of graduate student Charlie Garrison, who is skeptical, but he heads in to investigate. And the, the crate has been moved back under the stairs. And, you know, there it sets up this interesting, like, relationship between Garrison and Stanley there, where he's, like, trying to convince him not to go in. And uh, he, he doesn't believe that any of this happened, but there's the blood. It's I think that it's really... It's, it's a great way of keeping that tension building, despite the fact that our last scare was so was such a short time ago. Mm-hmm. And Garrison gets killed by the creature as he examines the crate. And I love the effects on Garrison when he gets slashed yeah, in the face. That I face think that slash those, is excellent. It looks really, really good. And Stanley runs away, and he goes to tell Henry, with whom he has a chest date, but he's he's traumatized, and he's, like, babbling to Northrop about this monster, and Northrop sees the creature as a way to rid himself of Billy, and so he drugs Stanley, and he lures Billy to the crate, and I, I love that it doesn't seem like the plan is gonna work, and he goes for it, he reveals his evil intent, and... The, the beast just doesn't wake up. I guess it's satiated because right. it just ate, ate two people. two humans for the first time in a hundred years or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so she is just berating him and being like, you can't even do this right. And her yelling at him wakes up the beast. And in fact, he does eat her after all. And Northrup, he locks the beast back in its crate and he has no trouble getting the trunk to his truck since the campus is deserted for break. Very convenient. <laughs> He drops it in a nearby lake where it sinks to the bottom, and he returns to assure Stanley that the creature is no more. And Stanley basically agrees to keep quiet, but we get a glimpse under the water, and we see that the now-awakened beast has escaped from its crate. I I think that this is such a great ending it's yeah. so it feels like such a classic monster movie move there was in the in the, a similar article i was reading that there was some talk about having the like corpse of billy kind of float out after it escaped as well and they cut that because they felt like having the fact that it escaped was just such a perfect moment to cut on and and let your mind kind of wander about not just what was going to happen to Northrup, but what was going to happen to the world. Yeah, it's more, it's, in it's it. less about, at that little moment, it's less about Henry or Northrop, Hal Holbrook. Um, it's less right. about him in that moment. It's more about, like you said, what's being unleashed mm-hmm. on everyone. Um, I, look, Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau, this, that, this movie is my introduction to both of them. And so anytime I've ever seen them in anything since then, I am reminded of Creepshow. And Adrian yeah. Barbeau never plays a character ever again, to my understanding, to my experience. Not like this. Like this. I mean, she's <laughs> so off the wall, so much fun. I mean, yeah. God, she does this like her her <laughs> drunk yelling, her ranting. And Henry. Jesus, Henry. And when she when when Henry gets her down to the basement. And he starts doing he, the way he lures her there is saying that Dexter's been been sleeping with a student or something, and she's hiding under the stairwell. And Hal Holbrook is telling this whole story, and he starts to sort of 
giggle, and she's like, Jesus, Henry, what, what did he do to her? And he's like, oh, you, it, it is kind of funny. You really got to see it. I mean, it is dark as hell, that moment. It's so yeah. dark. It's great. It really is. I think that they do such a good job of playing off of each other. He's so demure and quiet and reserved the whole time, and she is really leaning into it and playing it big. Every interaction that she has with another character is alienating. Yeah. <laughs> Every oh, yeah. single one. Oh, she's the worst, <laughs> and you totally understand why he'd want to feed her to a creature, but yeah. um, another another side story. <laughs> uh, at the SAG Awards, I don't remember when this was, back when Mad Men was a thing and went to these things. <laughs> Hal Holbrook had been in it was whatever year into the wild is that what it was called into the wild was uh at the sag awards as well and i walked past his table after the award show was over and everybody was leaving to go to the party and as i walked past his table the little hal holbrook table eight table tent was still on the uh table and i yoinked it and so <laughs> i still uh, tucked into a creep show book is my hal holbrook table tent from the sag awards however many wow. years ago that was delightful uh delightful <laughs> stalkery whatever you want you can call it whatever you'd like <laughs> and so th- this leads into our final full story they're creeping up on you my and favorite interesting i was gonna ask you what your favorite was i love that this is your favorite i think that this one is so interesting because it's so stripped down yeah. compared to the other ones I think it's really fascinating. We can talk about the way that you feel about it as we kind of go through, but uh, you know that's that's really great. And E.G. Marshall plays Upson Pratt, who's this ruthless businessman, and his fear of germs has him living in this hermetically sealed apartment, and it's outfitted with electric locks and waste disposal chutes and surveillance cameras and more. And to his consternation, this supposedly germ-proof apartment is clearly infested by hordes of cockroaches and shit rolls downhill so the already already crotchety bastard is even more antagonistic to employees and wives of business rivals driven to suicide alike (laughs) he's the worst i mean he's so great in this but he's just playing such a despicable person it's great God, it's great. This feels like such a fun role for him to oh. sink his teeth in. Like, you can feel how happy he is. <laughs> like, yeah. just getting a chance to swing for the fences here. And like you say, he's he's awful. He's, he's so cruel and unnecessarily so. Like, he's clearly taking delight in it. And E.G. Marshall is just doing such a good job at it. It's a real character you love to hate kind of guy i i love it i really think that he does an amazing job what's like six seven years later he plays beverly d'angelo's dad in national lampoon's christmas vacation and as crotchety as he is in that movie it's so adorable (laughs) compared to to mr pratt in creep (laughs) show Mr. Pratt is it's so true. terrible that that as grumbly as he is in Christmas Vacation, I can't take him that seriously in that yeah, movie. Because the bar was already set. He's so upsetting in this movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on top of all of this uh, roach infestation, which, by the way, is disgusting. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's ter- I mean, that's why that's, you know, just to circle back. This is part of why it's my favorite. There's no faking this. 
And in no. fact, they didn't fake it, which I'm sure you found in your research. Right. It's sort of like, I, I remember someone asking Penn and Teller, how did you do the cockroach trick on Letterman where it looked like you dumped like thousands of cockroaches on yourself? And they said, uh, well, what we did was uh, dumped thousands of cockroaches on ourselves. So <laughs> right, that's, what trick? That, yeah, that's basically what this movie is, is like, mm-hmm. I think, didn't they get the cockroaches from Mexico or something? And, yeah, and uh, 50 cents a piece. <laughs> oh, my God, which is a lot of money when you see how many cockroaches are in this thing. Yeah, I, I read the stat was uh, 250,000 of them for a total of $125,000 on the roaches. Uh, Romero, he said this at a panel in, I think, 2015, that this was the most expensive part of the movie. Oh, yeah, and it is gross. And when you imagine <laughs> what that place was like, and if I'm not mistaken, when it was all over, there was no way to contain all of them. They tried, but uh, I think this was shot in. It was shot somewhere in Pennsylvania, maybe Philadelphia uh, or Pittsburgh. It was shot I think in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh area. Yeah. Pittsburgh. yeah. So uh, they just unleashed thousands of cockroaches. Not wittingly, they didn't try to, but they also <laughs> were like, "Well, what the hell else are we supposed like? We can't, we can't confine them. They are take good that Pittsburgh, at this. Philly for life. That's right. <laughs> They're good at." Getting between cracks and hiding and surviving. So they're going to do that. Uh, They're not trained. They're just animals (laughs) being like, what the hell is happening and running for it. Oh, God. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I love this one so much. It's great. And that is, it's so impactful because you're you're like, this is an overwhelming amount of cockroaches. (laughs) It's not a guy dressed as a zombie. It's not a guy dressed as a plant or dressed as a water zombie or an animatronic fluffy monster. These are legit 200 and a quarter of a million bugs. Oh God, it's horrifying. (laughs) It's true. I mean, look, you live in a city. Occasionally you're going to see a roach. It's just a fact of life. But you know, when you see one, you go, Oh God, gross. And you see it. Quarter of a million. Oh of my them. god! It's a different story uh, entirely. <laughs> and you know he's already a germaphobe as well. And this thunderstorm is causing rolling blackouts. And he says, "If it was my power company, this wouldn't happen." <laughs> and the situation is getting worse and worse. And so he locks himself inside a panic room. Womp womp! The cockroaches have already infested that room oh as well. And it's worth noting as well that not only is it a lot of cockroaches. When we see them in close-ups, they are monstrously large. Oh, yeah. They're big-ass well. cockroaches. And uh, there's no way for him to escape because the blackout locks him in the panic room. And so he is swarmed by these cockroaches, which induces a fatal heart attack. Later on, the electricity returns and Pratt's corpse is shown in a now roachless panic room as one of the employees from before calls to check in. And he doesn't hear anything. He says, bug got your tongue? And uh, indeed they do, because (laughs) Pratt's body, and like I said, definitely not a dummy, begins to contort, and the roaches explode out, recoding the room in a layer of bugs at least a foot high. Like, this thing is just, it's like offends my soul (laughs) it is an upsetting amount of cockroaches (laughs) i had the uh pleasure of attending last year obviously it's never happening again but the the horror nights at universal they do the the, their big like haunted displays and everything it's really so much fun and last year they did a creep show haunted house and i was so excited <laughs> it happened because of the shutter show right and and shutter and amc were a big part of uh, i'm presume paying for it but i think if i'm if i'm not mistaken there were five areas 
of the haunted house, five sort of um, settings you went through. Two of them were from the show and three were from the movie. You saw uh, the kitchen from Father's Day with the cake head. You saw Fluffy jumping out of a crate at you. And then you went through Ups and Pratt's cockroach room. And they it was done with lots of lighting effects. Um, you know those lights that if you look down, it looks like bugs are crawling all over the floor and also your legs and feet. It is right. It was <laughs> oh, man. an upsetting. And again, it takes a lot to truly get under my skin. This story always gets under my skin. That horror experience at Universal got under my skin. Being around bugs still now gets under my skin. This is one of my favorite moments in horror is the 15 minutes or whatever it takes to tell this story. Yeah, Uh, understandably so, I think. And it's really great. I don't know which one. I feel like my favorite changes every time I go through. You know, I I love something to tide you over. I love the lonesome death of Jordy Farrell. Me too. Me too. Ah oh, man, I think that it. I think that Jordy might be my number one, and that's uh, that's going to be controversial for some people. And to <laughs> it, that, I say, it, get your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely going to be controversial, but I, I, I also that's part of what I love about this movie is that anyone with whom I speak about this movie has a different favorite. Well, within the range of five, obviously, sure. but there I've only spoken to five people, so you're you're the last <laughs> one. Um, but no, it's just that because they're all such different stories because it is such a sampler plate of horror it's you know you you get sort of your creature feature vibe with the bug you get your uh, cosmic your with cosmic the, yeah, with Vero. jordy Verrill. you know you you get the revenge tale with something tied you over you get something for everyone in this thing and i it's part of what i love about it i have no no reservation about sharing this movie with anyone because i i genuinely believe you will find something that you enjoy in it. And as you said, it's not, you know, it's not like showing them Mandy or something where it's bonkers and they just right. are like, what, what am I even watching? Like, that's not, it's a good <laughs> entry level for anyone. Yeah, I agree. And I honestly, I even like the bookend because I, uh, you know, we lead into the epilogue here and yeah. it's the morning after and we get to see Tom Savini, which is fun. Yes. He's one of the two garbage collectors <laughs> and, they find the Creepshow comic book and they flip through the ads and they lament that the order form for the voodoo doll has already been redeemed. And he's, he's something really funny in that little moment too, by the way, I, like he, yeah. he hams it up too. And it's great. Yeah. Tom Savini has been really fun in a lot of stuff. Like when he's in, um, from dusk till dawn, yes. he's so fun in that he's fun in the, um, the dawn of the dead when he's in the, the biker gang, he's uh, he, Tom Savini. That guy's all right in my book. He is okay. <laughs> and I also think it's really funny to like take a step back and picture this guy being like, it, what if the voodoo doll was there? Is this garbage guy going to be like, hell yeah, I'm going to order this guy, this voodoo doll. <laughs> and doesn't Tom Savini just as a like side trivia, doesn't he play the creep in creep show two? That may be so. I actually didn't know that. I think, well, uh, and I'm sure someone will correct me, but someone <laughs> plays the cre- the creep is more like a a and uh, a more present entity in Creep Show too. He talks. He's like now Billy. He like kind of right. speaks. Um, and I think Tom Savini plays him, but I could be wrong. Wow. I don't recall. Anyway, I do know that that Creep Show two. John Harrison, I think, is his name. Who did the? Uh, he was the first AD on Creep Show and. Mm-hmm. 
did all the music. Wow. I believe that's I believe important. That's too. right. Like, it's the music's a, great in this. It's one of the only soundtracks I own on uh, on vinyl. Is the wow. Creepshow soundtrack? Uh, yes, I believe. I be- uh, by the way, very possible. I'm screwing up this name. I believe it's John Harrison, and I believe he was first AD on the first Creepshow. Did the music for the movies, and then has gone on to direct as well. Directed, I believe, an episode or two of the Creepshow series. Boy, I, I, it is very possible. I'm speaking directly out of my ass, but I think that no, that's hey, true. I would believe it because they they clearly are so interested in keeping it in the family and yeah. making sure that the people who work on it understand it. It's right. not it. This none of it feels like uh, a boardroom was like. What are the what are the kids into these days? <laughs> like no one was, no one is making creep show as like a marketing decision right. for like the youth. This is people who are enthusiastic about it, who want to make it. It's a passion project, and I think that that is evident by how long the people have stuck with it throughout the the course of this franchise that's been around for now uh, almost forty years. So Crazy. yeah, and. Inside the house, we see that Stan is complaining of neck pain, and it seems to turn deadly as Billy goes wild with the pin on the voodoo doll in retaliation. So, all's well that ends well, I guess. Uh, um, it's a grim ending. It's kind of a, a grim ending for w- what is a pretty lighthearted movie, you know, but I love that it does end on that note of like, you don't see him die, but he's definitely like kind of keeling over a little bit. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's, um, I just think that it's a really interesting way for them to close out and give you one last like, no, this is a real, this is a horror movie. <laughs> like, it's Okay. I looked it up. I, I cheated. John Harrison was the first AD on both Creepshow and Day of the Dead, and was the composer for both. And then there you go. Has, so, so you were right. I was right. I did it. I really <laughs> did it. I'm so proud. Now, I don't know. Excellent I, poll. I, oh, and, and I'm just going to make sure I'm right on this. He directed four segments on the series uh, Creepshow. Okay, good. Whew. There we go. My ass was right hey. this time. <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, you nailed it. Thank you. So as the credits ran, I thought it was really interesting that each segment had a different editor, which I think really helps to make them have that different feeling of cosmic or whatever. You know, in in addition to the story, they're all kind of edited with each person's own voice, which I I thought was just a really cool touch as well. And uh, as I was watching the credits, I want to shout out the Roach Wranglers, David A. Brody and Raymond A. Mendez. David and Raymond. (laughs) Way to go. You You suffered for our enjoyment. Unleashed a scourge (laughs) on Pennsylvania. (laughs) And as I mentioned, this was adapted into an actual comic book of the same name. It was illustrated by uh, Bernie Wrightson of Heavy Metal and Warren Magazine's fame. And he had also uh, appropriately been influenced by the 1950s EC Comics as well. And as you say, a sequel, Creepshow 2, was released in 1987. That's where I got 1987 in That's my head it. from. <laughs> and once again, based on Stephen King's short stories uh, with a screenplay from Creepshow director George Romero, which I thought was a really interesting swap there that he did the, the screenplay for the second one. That film only contained uh, three tales of horror due to budget constraints as opposed to the original five. But, you know, it's still it's great. People love it. As we say, there's the TV show version as well on Shudder, with season two coming out next year. Yes. Continues both the storied tradition of lots of wonderful actors in it and the spirit of Creepshow. And, of course, season three will have Rich Summer on it. 
<laughs> we have to will it into existence here. I, but, let's do it. I'm in. And, uh, as much as that legacy is a part of it, we've reached the point now, Rich, where we sum up why Creepshow itself, the singular item of Creepshow, is the best horror movie ever made. So I'll let you start us off here and, uh, and go for it. Well, look, I think I've said it a few times throughout our time together here, but it is it, it was my true entry into the genre, and I think it is a perfect entry point for anyone who is looking to sort of give it a whirl. Now, again, stylistically, it, it may not look like everything looks right now, but if you're open to it, there's no better movie for giving you a sort of idea of the thing you might be into without having to commit to five or ten different horror movies in one movie. I can show yeah. you five different sorts of subgenres, styles, um, acting uh, choices. I can show you all kinds of different things that will allow you to sort of narrow down what you're into. And I think that um, it does all of them well. So for a movie, when some movies can't do one thing well all the way through, this one does at least five well all the way through. And I just think it's, uh, you know, I think it's the best horror movie ever made. Yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is the opposite of the movie Hellfest. Hellfest is a movie that is so clearly made by committee. Every choice in it screams that it is calculated, it, there's a, a budget line that measures the effectiveness versus the cost, and there's you know royalty-free music used as the guy's theme song because he whistles, pop goes the weasel, and his face is just a blank white mask, and there's just no heart in it. And Creepshow is all heart. Every second of this movie oozes with passion for horror as a genre. It is explicit in the text, in the bookend uh, epilogue and prologue sections. It is evident in just the way that they homage the things of the past. And it's such a, a, a ray of sunshine in two storied horror creators' work. And all of those things combined with the fact that there are plenty of actors here who are great actors having fun. I, I think that all of these things add up to make the best horror movie ever made. In addition to all of the wonderful things about it being a great starter point for a lot of people. Uh, and so that is why to me, it is the best horror movie ever made. Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun, man. George, an absolute delight. I will, I could talk about this movie as you probably figured out all day long. And it was, it was nice to speak with someone who, who seems to at least share some of the reverence that I have for it. And, and uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Is there anything that you want to plug, tell people where they can follow you on social and stuff? I mean, I was off of Twitter for a long time and I've sort of started during this pandemic because what else am I doing? <laughs> so I'm at Rich Summer, R-I-C-H-S-O-M-M-E-R on Twitter. And, and these days I'm, as you said, tweeting a lot about horror. I'm working my way through 50 plus movies from the 80s, horror movies from the 80s that either I've never seen and should have or have seen and want to see where they fit into the context. So I'm watching them in release order. I'm not really 
talking about them anywhere or just sort of doing it for my own fun. But I do tweet about them once in a while. So there's that. I just uh, today watched the original The Evil Dead, which was fun. And oh, uh, tonight's uh, I hope to watch Cat People. So I'm, I'm sort of just entering 82. So I'm only a few movies away from seeing how Creepshow fits finally in, in sort of context of what came right before right. it and what came soon after it. But I do. I also want to say, by the way, no, I don't have anything to plug. I don't. I, I'm never working again uh, because of this thing. I just love seeing where I think in this moment a little bit. I mean, we're in a lot of moments. There's a lot of room for a lot of things to happen right now. But I love that Creepshow seems to be sort of having this little resurgence. Not just Creepshow, but I guess anthology horror. As as we said earlier about Scare Package and Mortuary Collection and Nightmare Cinema, which came out uh, that was Mick Garris a couple of years ago, and uh, and I think Joe Dante uh, directed one of those yeah. segments as well. Like it's and then with the Creepshow show on Shutter, uh, I I just think it's a it's a perfect time to go back and check out this movie. So I would like to plug the film uh, Creep Show from 1982 if I could, please. <laughs> I'll allow it. I'll Thanks, allow George. it. And uh, <laughs> and hey, hopefully, Tales from the Crypt comes back. Uh, oh, that would be lovely. I'm in for that. There was there was a moment there where it was supposed to. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a couple of right, years with, ago, like M Night, right? Yeah, it was it was uh, sort of standing to be re-upped, and then there were some disagreements about who truly owned mm. the Crypt Keeper. And uh, it, it, I think, has been shelved for now, which is a bummer because as far as yeah. I'm concerned, you know, all of these sorts of anthology horror shows, I'm not talking about the season long anthologies like American Horror Story, which is, is great in its own right. I'm just talking about these single episode. Like, did you ever watch that Friday the 13th TV series in the 80s from Canada? It's that, not like Friday the 13th. It, it's not like the movies <laughs> Friday the 13th, but it's. It was another one that, like, for me, I just yeah. I watched it whenever I could because it, I love this short sort of storytelling format. So, yeah, that's all. Watch Definitely. Creep Show. I think we mentioned yeah. it. Watch that movie. <laughs> Um, and also, I do want to encourage people to check out uh, some of these movies that you've been watching on on Twitter. I actually took one of the movies that you watched as well. I watched Fade to Black off of oh. your uh, recommendation on on Letterboxd, and uh, I thought that it was really good. It's and so crazy people good. Check I it loved out. it. <laughs> and, and as as people who like movies, George, I think it's particularly well suited for us. It's a horror movie yeah. about and for people who love movies, and I just. Yeah. Oh man, and the way that story is oh I could I could do a whole episode on that one too. The way that story is told, the way it uses these interstitial clips. How long is this podcast? Oh, the clips I'm are so great. Definitely pushing oh, past. There's no, okay, no, there's no time limit. No, there's no time limit. Sorry. <laughs> and I agree, no, but I agree the the clips that are kind of put in and oh. reflected in the protag- or protagonist, I guess. There's <laughs> a weird word for, for lack it, of but, a better uh, word than that one. Yeah, uh, his actions are are just so well done. I mean, the psycho moment in oh. it is just fantastic but yeah before i digress too hard that's uh people should check that out as well and check out rich's 50 horror movies from the 1980s uh as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl we have a patreon now as well that people can check out where we'll have uh ad free early and bonus content that people can check out there are three three tiers there um we're going to be doing stuff like movie commentaries for b movies uh you know there's a lot of people who do commentaries for the big tent poles and we sat down and we thought what do we have to say about these movies that hasn't already been said? But with B-movies, sometimes it's hard to find people who are into them, and those movies are much better with friends. So 
you put on our commentary and it'll be just like you're sitting there with us watching uh, terrible movies. I, well, they're also great, though. Where the first one, I think, is going to be Extra, which is a movie that I truly, truly love. So check out the Patreon oh, for so more info about that. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much it. If you're enjoying the show, uh, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And uh, yeah, that's it. So thanks again, Rich. And uh, have a good one, everyone. <laughs>